Chapter thirty four, part two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter thirty four, part two. A large company of merrymakers is passing along the narrow street with music, all in rich costumes and garlands, led by the fairest of them, Mary Magdalene. But as they pass, Mary sees at an open window a face that makes her pause. The eyes of Jesus have met hers. She is seen ascending the few steps that lead to the door, not heeding the youths trying to restrain her, tearing off her garlands. Her long, wavy hair floats back, and the pathetically beautiful face is stretched forward, forever turned away from her gay companions, who stand, stricken with wonder, to the one face. From her girdle hangs the antique round flagon of spikenard. The picture started me on a quest concerning the Magdalene, with the result of my discovery that the story of her immorality and her penitence was not only unauthorized by the New Testament, but inconsistent with it. Footnote. The late Bishop of London preached an eloquent sermon in St. Paul's Cathedral, in which he pictured Jesus as having around him all the types of human character. Among these types was Mary Magdalene, the penitent. Through the Westminster Gazette, I asked his lordship his reason for supposing that Mary Magdalene had any more reason for penitence than any other lady in Jerusalem. My note was printed under the heading, A Much Calumniated Lady. His lordship printed a respectful admission that there was no authority in the New Testament for the received story, but it was an ancient church tradition. In 1887 I was visited by the Rev. Dr. R. S. Storrs, who was much interested in this picture, and I afterwards read in the New York Independent the report of an address given by him, October 5, 1887, at Springfield, Massachusetts, in which he said, I saw, not a great while ago, in the house of a gentleman then living in Brooklyn, an etching by Gabriel Rossetti, of which I have never seen any other copy, and of which I doubt if any other copy exists. It pictured the Magdalene, riding through the streets of Jerusalem, with a crowd around her. Her tumbled gold of hair fell upon her shoulders. Everything in her dress was wanton and lascivious. Everything in her face portrayed marvelous beauty, but with animal passion flaming through it. The traces of passion, however, were of the past. Even as she rode, with the attendants around her, with the crowd of her admirers, with the spangles on her dress and with the crown of flowers upon her head, she caught the eye of the Christ and saw his face looking from the window upon the street, and her face had blanched into a pallid hue, and she was tearing with trembling and swift hands the crown from her head and the ornaments from her dress, and flinging them into the street before the face and eye of the Son of God. I thought to myself, there is a type of the change in every heart, however sinful, when it sees the face of Christ. Self-rebuke, piercing pangs of remorse rising in it, but at the same time the wondering love, 
the adoration of the spirit toward him by whom this marvellous and instantaneous change hath been wrought the memory of dr storrs was at fault in two details she is not writing and her face is refined but no minister can easily see any magdalen not voluptuous this is the way the myth grew and will grow because her supposed sinfulness makes the charm of the romance End of footnote. rossetti's mary magdalen was drawn from miss siddle two years before she became his wife and is i believe the only portrait of her at that early time it is beautiful it is probable that after her tragical death february eighteen sixty two this portrait possessed too much sacredness for him to give the picture to the world there was enough in the romance of rossetti and his wife to recall that of jules the sculptor in browning's pippa passes when rossetti found her she was a model holman hunt painted from her his sylvia millet his ophelia but rossetti saw in her the possibility of a creation higher than pictorial art could produce he taught her in art and she became an able artist after her death he collected all her pictures among them was a very striking one which she had called shipwreck a group of women on a cliff are endeavoring to rescue those wrecked in showing us these pictures rossetti said had she lived she would have done better work than i in mary magdalene at the house of simon the pharisee there are thirteen interesting faces the youth with garlanded head who seeks to restrain mary resembles the poet swinburne there has been this long time a discussion concerning the man who sat as a model for this wonderful head of jesus it is said by one party to have been sir edward burne jones by the other party george meredith the picture being celebrated the claims have been rather warmly asserted william rossetti told me that his brother got burne jones to sit for him but once on receiving a call from george meredith who was not unlike Burne jones he took some traits from him. The painting, it is before me as I write, easily reminds me of both of those fine faces, but the hair and beard are drawn from the purely fictitious letter ascribed to Publius Lentulus. His beard, full, of an auburn color like his hair, not long, but parted. The most wonderful feature is the eye, luminous clear freighted with a serene strength drawing mary to his feet rossetti had not the least interest in christian dogmas and never alluded to them nor did he ever attend any church or chapel but he had created out of the christian legends and symbols a new set and thus fashioned a poetic religion for himself everything had to be transmuted he paints Mary holding the infant Jesus in leading strings. His little hand grasps at a passion flower. If he paints a subject from some poem, it must first fall into his mind as a seed and flower into a new poem. Such was the gate of memory which I purchased at Christie's. This beautiful picture was suggested by a poem of W. B. Scott entitled Mary Ann. My friend Scott as I note in his reminiscences, erroneously supposed that 
his idea was represented in the painting. The poem is of a betrayed woman wandering in London, where she sees a group of innocent children at play. Embittered by the recollection of her own former innocence and happiness, she curses the children. Rossetti told me what he had in mind when painting this picture. The betrayed woman looks through an arched gateway which is the mystical gate of memory. She sees there a vision of her childhood when, as a harvest queen, children and maidens joined hands and danced around her. She looks in, not with anger, but with patient sorrow. Her head is uncovered, save by its abundant hair. She gathers her shawl close around her, for she is in the cold street, and at her feet between her and the vision runs a rat, a symbol of the betrayer's lust that separated her from that flower-crowned self. When I purchased these pictures, Rossetti asked me to lend them to him, and I did so. But my wife became anxious lest he might alter them seriously. So we went down to his studio, and he smilingly gave them back, admitting that he had thought of retouching them, but concluded like ourselves that they had best remain. Rossetti was an appreciative friend of my wife, and we generally went to his studio together. We witnessed the progress of some of his pictures, among these Love Leading Dante to Beatrice on the Day of Her Death. On the day when he told us of its completion we hastened to see it, and were there with him alone. He sat beside his work and read to us the poem he had translated from the Vita Nuova, now and then pausing at some line to look on us as if asking if we realized its depth. The lines especially related to the picture are these. Then, lifting up mine eyes, as the tears came, I saw the angels, like a rain of manna, in a long flight flying back heavenward, having a little cloud in front of them, after which they went and said, Hosanna. And if they had said more, you should have heard. Then love said, Now shall all these things be made clear. Come and behold Our Lady where she lies. These wildering fantasies then carried me to see my Lady dead. Even as I there was led, her ladies with a veil were covering her and with her was such very humbleness that she appeared to say, I am at peace. When Rossetti read that the angels said Hosanna, and if they had said more you should have heard, he paused and said, That is quaint. And from that point his voice became lower and subtly sweet, even moving in the words, I am at peace. The portrait of his wife was on the wall just above his head. The genius of Dante Rossetti expressed itself in every least line of his countenance. It was as smooth in every part as if carved, but lights and shades passed over it, and sometimes shifting colors. The eyes now drooped, now expanded. That day when the painting he most loved was completed, he was himself a picture never to be forgotten. We comprehended the mystical meaning of that kiss of Eros. For the face of love was that of the young wife he had lost, and the Beatrice on whom love's lips were pressed 
was Mrs. William Morris. His wife, whom one night on entering their bedroom he had found seated at her toilet table dead, might well have leaned out of heaven to kiss Mrs. Morris, for it was she who had lifted the soul of Rossetti out of the grave. I have not in my long life known anything more quasi-miraculous than this reappearance in modern London of Dante and Beatrice. There was no slightest consciousness in it, no poetic posing. The superb lady, great-hearted and sincere, recognized the fine spirit to which she was related and responded to his visions and ideals. He painted from her many of his most high and spiritual pictorial poems. Happily she had a husband who could not only write poems, but appreciate the poem lived in his household. Mrs. William Morris had no levity about her. She was long our neighbor, and I had the pleasure of assisting the efforts of herself and her daughters to clear away some of the evils of Hammersmith. Earnest and serious as she was beautiful, her presence lent a charm to every company in which she appeared, and she was honored by all who knew her and Dante Rossetti as one who thought for herself, and was great enough to live in accordance with her own heart. Intellectually, Dante Rossetti was a free thinker, though in a vague and untrained way. It was, I believe, because the Protestant dogmas had never touched him at all, and the Catholic creeds with which he was more familiar had faded away in the London atmosphere, that he was able to see so clearly whatever was poetic and picturesque in ancient legends and visions. Madonna, Magdalene, Damoiselle, Angel, they all became lovable and familiar phantoms to him, forms of feeling. But as life wore on, he more and more felt their unreality, and after the death of a youth he loved, Oliver Maddox Brown, in 1874, there was an increasing plaintiveness in his tone which made his friends feel anxious. In 1875 he wrote a sonnet, which his friend Dan Reuther set to music, and gave me leave to print it in a piece I was writing, The Angel of Death. Knowst thou not at the fall of the leaf how the heart feels a languid grief laid on it for covering? and how sleep seems a goodly thing in autumn at the fall of the leaf, and how the swift beat of the brain falters because it is in vain in autumn at the fall of the leaf. Knowest thou not? And how the chief of joys seems not to suffer pain? Knowest thou not at the fall of the leaf how the soul feels like a dried sheaf, bound up at last for harvesting, and how death seems a comely thing in autumn at the fall of the leaf. Rossetti had an affection for his pictures, they were his children, and everyone surrounded with personal associations and cherished memories. His pigments were mixed with his heart's blood. After I had purchased two of his pictures, he wrote to me to come and dine with Maddox Brown and Dr. Gordon Hake, whose poetry we both admired, and begged me to bring the pictures. When I came, he received me as if I had become his kinsman, and handled the dear little things as if they were his long-lost children. 
he had not seen them for a good many years. One day I told him I was going north and would stop to see the collection of Mr. Ray near Liverpool, which contained some of Rossetti's works. Incidentally, I remarked that some of my friends in America were interested in him, and I hoped that some of his pictures would find their way over there. He perhaps supposed that the Ray collections might be sold, and some of its Rossettis secured by me for American friends. At any rate, in a letter about other matters came this paragraph. If we had been longer together the other day, I might have mentioned a point connected with the question as to Ray's collection. This is the fact, important only to myself, that I should really regret the transportation for life of some half-dozen pictures which I should like to be visible and attainable at need. Of course, I only mention this as a personal feeling, but you will perceive it could not well be otherwise. This struck me at the time as more peculiar than it seems now, 1904. Among all my pictures, those by Rossetti have given me the most constant delight. The head of Jesus has become to me mystically sacred. Memories of my beloved friend who painted it, of the great artist and the brilliant authors whose features are visible in it, of that dearest heart that found in it her ideal, enable me in my old age to interpret the innumerable personal associations which have gone to create that ideal being, to which human hearts tenderly sing, Lover of my soul. It is droll to think that in 1867 Ruskin could speak of Burne-Jones as almost derided. The artist presently made D.C.L. by Oxford, and ultimately a baronet. One day I found Burne-Jones at work on a saint, for some church window. And I, almost a nihilist, he said smilingly. It was precisely that which made him so happy in such work. When a mind gets entirely outside of all creeds and superstitions, he can see them all with an impartial eye as varied expressions of human nature. They become folklore, mythology, variegated fauna and flora of the human heart and imagination. The harmony of the world was set in his heart, and I associate his genius with the wonderful decoration he gave to a piano made for a wealthy friend of his. On the lid is a muse leaning from an aureole of the blue sky. Beneath stands a poet musing. Between them is a scroll inscribed with a bit of old French, n'oubliez pas, motto of the owner's family. At another end of the lid is painted amid bay leaves the page of a book with illuminated letters, the lines being those of one of Dante's minor poems, beginning fresca rosa novella but these beauties are surpassed when the lid is lifted amid the strings which are exposed there is a drift of roses as if blown into little heaps at the corners by the breath of music on the interior surface is terra omniparens between the thorns and roses sits this most beautiful mother naked and serene with many babes around her Above, beneath, around, amid the foliaceous, they are seen. Impish, cherubic, some engaged in the ingenuities of mischief, others in deeds of kindliness and love. Greed, avarice, cruelty, affection, prayer, 
in all their varieties are represented by these little faces and forms. Some nestle around the mother. One has fallen asleep in her lap. The fair mother never smiles nor frowns. She is impartial as the all-nourishing, patient earth she typifies. All the discords turn to harmonies in her eternal generation. Her impartial love waits on the good and the evil. She is one with the art that shares with great creating nature. The paintings of Burne Jones fascinated me in an especial way. It seemed as if each subject he touched had taken possession of him and selected the pigments of itself. One of his pictures, which I saw on the easel, the Wheel of Fortune, with terrible contrasts between those at the top and those beneath, impressed me so much that I ventured to ask him if he had any particular description of the goddess in mind. He said he would think about that, and soon afterward I received a note in which he said, You asked me on what my version of fortune is made. It was a question not easy to answer, I remember, for the first impulse and vision of a picture is not easy to analyze. I think I saw the wheel chiefly, and that something terrible was connected with the thought of it, the sphere and the spokes and tire, and that dread connected with its form was paramount in the first conception. It was said into my hearing, O wheel, do you remember? So the wheel got its spirit and its victims, the lucky and unlucky, and the onlooker. Pre-Raphaelism, in naming its short-lived periodical The Germ, was conscious that it was initiative. But in their varied developments the brothers generally showed a tendency to free thought. Holman Hunt, who painted Christ legends so devoutly that it was said some pious ladies took prayer books when they went to his exhibitions, had peculiar conceptions of the gospel narratives which he studied minutely. It was so rare to find a gentleman of culture in London who, unless in holy orders, believed those narratives without allegorical or rationalistic interpretations, that Holman Hunt's talk was original. I think he may have been influenced by the Muslim faith, in whose atmosphere he resided so much. Muslims accept the gospel miracles literally, and skepticism is unknown among them. He got near to the hearts of the Bedouins, and his conversation about them was profoundly interesting. He discovered that there existed in Palestine a secret sect of Bedouin spiritualists, and was invited to one of their secret seances. He attended, but on finding that it was to open with a prayer to Satan, Shaitan, he left at once. As a demonologist I had to deplore the loss of that prayer, and class the scholarly artist with a lady in Hampshire who said to my friend Mrs. Rose Mary Crochet, do you make your children cross themselves when they say the word Satan? I do. I think it's safer. Notwithstanding all that Christian painting, Holman Hunt was not the artist chosen to decorate churches. Most of such work was done by Burne Jones and William Morris, skeptics. The history of the introduction of Christianity into England was painted on panels in Manchester Town Hall by Maddox Brown, who believed in no form of Christianity. The seal of the London County Council was designed by Walker Crane, freethinker and socialist. 
with ford maddox brown i was on terms of particular intimacy because of his sympathy with my religious heresies i assisted at the marriages of his daughters one to franz heufner the musical critic another to william rossetti and i conducted the funerals of his son and of himself his quaint house in fitzroy square was long the weekly salon of unconventional artists and writers on a single evening i have met there turgenev the rossettis blinds stillman's holman hunts alma tademas william morris and his wife arthur hughes woolner garnett burne jones and his wife whistler ralston the poets allingham swinburne goss marston if french artists or authors were in london they generally found their way to maddox brown who though of english parentage was born in france and trained in french art schools in the happy household the only son was oliver whose death in his twentieth year filled us all with dismay his precocious genius had already made its mark in art and literature and the sweetness of his spirit made him the beloved of all dante rossetti loved him as if he were a son and i shall never forget the agony in his face when he talked to me of oliver just before my address at the funeral ford maddox brown in his letter requesting my services at the funeral expressed to me his disbelief of all theologies but although without any of those hopes of future life in which believers find consolation i never knew in all my ministry whether among methodists or unitarians more courage than was displayed by this devoted father under unexpected and terrible affliction stricken as by a thunderbolt he was yet not shattered he set himself to soothe the bereaved ones around him he sustained them on his great heart and he never faltered in his devotion to his art the noble and beautiful life went on until nineteen years later we laid him at finchley beside his son and wife all the artists in london were mourners at that grave ford maddox brown never had an enemy in his life i used to watch maddox brown's pictures as they grew his distinctively poetic pictures such as the corsair the parting of romeo and juliet and king lear all full of refined feeling and sincerity and at length the fruitage of his poetic in his historical work represented in those wonderful paintings that glorify the manchester town hall the knowledge implied in those paintings dealing with early epochs of british history the perception at once of the moral the national and the picturesque aspect of history and the mastery of detail in form and color make those manchester panels a national treasure they are also a monument of the literary combined with the artistic scholarship which alone could have produced them they are unique and they show the artist was not to be labeled as of this or that school but one who developed a school of his own End of chapter 34, part 2